Okay, it's great to see all of you here today. Uh, let's uh, go to God in prayer as we prepare our hearts to listen to God's Word. Dear Father, as we come before you today, just pray that you will help us through the Holy Spirit to really focus on your Word to us in 2 John. We just pray that if there are any distractions, if we are tired, if we are fatigued, or if we have worries, that you will set them aside because what you speak to us today in your Word far outweighs them all. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you believe there is such a thing as the truth? Can you believe that there is such a thing as the truth? Uh, I think that nowadays in the world that we live in, we don't really believe in the truth. We believe in many versions of a truth. So if you've been looking at uh, the newspapers, and I guess you can't really avoid it, if you've been following the Malaysian Airlines tragedy regarding flight MH370, there are many versions of the truth out there. So just recently, uh, the past Prime Minister of Malaysia, Mahathir Mohamad, his version of the truth of what happened was that actually the plane was hijacked by the CIA somehow, and now the plane is flying somewhere without Malaysian Airlines markings. Uh, for some other people, the version of the truth about what happened to the plane is that it crashed into the sea and it's because of the pilot committed suicide. Uh, there may be some other people whose versions of the truth is that it was hit by a meteor. Right, so there are all these versions of the truth out there and everybody feels that their version of the truth is the right one. Now, unfortunately, many people bring that same attitude to reading God's Word, the Bible. The Bible... And reading the Bible is not about the truth, one truth and one truth alone, but it's a version of a truth which I wish to receive. So I remember how I was talking to a friend of mine once, and he said to me, oh, you know, you have your way of reading the Bible, and I have my way of reading the Bible, and they're all legitimate ways of reading the Bible. I was in theological college many years ago now, it seems, and this is a very popular way of understanding God's Word. In fact, there's even a term for it. It's called the reader response to the Bible. So the Bible is not determined by what the author's intent is, what the author is intending to communicate to you. The truth of the Bible is determined by the reader response. That means the reader, me, determines what truth I want to receive out of the Bible. So, if you're a black woman living in South Africa, the Bible means something different to you than what it means as a Chinese person reading in Singapore as it is a white man living in North America. It is the reader's response to what the Bible is saying and I can choose the truth that I want. But is that really the right way of understanding God's Word? Is that the right way of understanding God's communication to us? Well, today as we look at 2 John, it starts off in verse 1 by saying, The elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I only, but also all who know the truth. Now, before we get into the main heart of the passage, uh, let's look a bit about who is writing this letter, and it's written by this person called the Elder. Now, the Elder is not an old person, okay? He's not saying the old person writing to the lady. Although in the ancient world, the elder was usually an older person, but the, an elder was a title given to someone who was given leadership and oversight responsibility over a local church. And the elder's main job was really teaching 
and instructing of God's people. In the ancient world, the apostles would go around evangelizing, and after they evangelized, they would appoint elders over the church that they had left behind. So, uh, today I've got lots of slides, because last week, when, while I was preaching, I was actually sitting in the cry room, and I realized it's really boring in there. So, when they have the LCDs, people are paying attention, so I have a lot of LCDs today. So, in Titus chapter 1, it says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what I was left behind and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So, you can see here that in the ancient world, next slide, uh, these people will go around evangelizing and when they had a body of believers uh, in a church, they would appoint elders who would then be instructed to be like the local teachers and the local instructors to look after the spiritual welfare of the people around. But if you look here in 2 John, it doesn't say a elder, it is the elder. So this person who is writing 2 John is more than just a local church leader. He is the elder, most probably in charge of a whole collection of churches. And he's writing to one church. In fact, next slide. If you look here at 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter calls himself an elder as well as recognizing himself to be an apostle. So 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. So for many people, many commentators who study the Bible, 2 John, next slide, was probably written by an apostle, right? Apostle John, that's why it's called 2 John. And he calls himself the elder and he's, he writes to this lady. Now, this lady is not uh, one woman with her four kids, but more likely it's the church because in the Bible, usually the church is referred to metaphorically as the bride of Christ, as uh, uh, a lady, right? Because later on in verse 13, it also says, the children of your sister, who is chosen by God, sends their greetings. So it's almost as if, you know, when you talk about schools, you have your sister school, or you talk about cities, you have your sister city. In the same way, he's actually writing as an elder, the elder, to the church, as one of many churches in which he is having oversight and care over. And what does he have to say? Well, he has to say something very, very important. And the phrase and the theme of that very important message is the truth. Because if you read verse 1 to verse 6, the word the truth appears over and over and over again. So in verse 1 he says, The elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth. And not I alone only, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Now, uh, John was probably a very deep thinker because in that two verses, he really packs in a lot of information. And I've sort of broken down for you here. So if you have a look up here, next slide. Oh, okay, you see, ah, that one, the next one. You see that there are actually three things being said there. The first thing is, the elder loves the church or the people in the church because they are in the truth. The second thing is, the people who know the truth also love the church, the people in the truth. 
And lastly, the third thing is, because of the truth, they are motivated to love one another. Now, what is this thing called truth? The truth. Well, I think the truth is really two things. It is a body of knowledge which is limited and exclusive and restricted. And it is this body of truth which has been passed down to Jesus, to his apostles, to the church. Okay, so if you go back again to the previous slide, I think that's what the truth is about. Okay, it's about a body of knowledge about God and Jesus and everything concerning God's plans in the world. But it's been passed down by Jesus to the apostles to his church. The reason why is if you read verse 9, it says, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ. So it's teaching from Christ about Christ. So this is a, the truth that the early church was meant to hold on to. So what happens when these people have the truth? Well, the first thing as we read there is that there is a unity, a, a, a bond together as God's people. The elder loves the church, this lady, in the truth, and all those people who know the truth also love this church. See, they're united. Okay, it's not Manchester United, it is people united in the truth. And that's where true unity comes from. See, what unites us? Are we united because we are Presbyterians? Are we united because we are under the same building? No. Are we united because we are all Asian? No, we are united because we are in the truth. Now, uh, I found this old book in the church one day. I think it's really, really old and it's actually given to somebody who obviously didn't value it and left it in the church. Uh, it's up here. This is about what it looks like. And it's called The Basis of Christian Unity by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he writes something very, very helpful here. And he says, The question of unity must never be put first. He says, we always start with doctrine which follows unity. Right? We always start with doctrine and then with the right doctrine follows unity. So we must never start with the visible church or with an institution, but rather the truth which alone creates unity. See, that's where biblical unity comes from. It doesn't come from a man-made institution or calling us a certain name or binding us by a constitution, but by unity in the truth. That's what this passage is about. Unity cannot be imposed externally, but actually arises naturally because we have a common conviction, a common knowledge, and a common faithfulness to that truth. And I remember this speaker uh, who came from England many years ago. I can't even remember his name now. And he gave, made this really interesting uh, observation which stuck with me. He said that actually many church organizations nowadays were not really interested in the truth. Okay, so the next slide. So this is how biblical unity is seen. Okay, we hold on to God's word. We are convicted of the truth. We know the truth. We live out the truth. And as a body of believers in Africa, America, Australia, Singapore, because we are convicted of this truth, we are united, right? But nowadays, actually, in many institutions, we try to create unity outside of the truth. So what happens is, if uh, you look at this slide, there are these churches out here outside of the truth. Maybe they believe in uh, sexuality, which is different from the Bible. 
Maybe they believe in a different Jesus. Maybe they believe in a different salvation altogether. But because we want to be united, what do we do? Next slide. We expand the circle of what is accepted and say, okay, we are all Christians, even though these people are not in the truth. And I think that's a very real, real situation. Uh, In my many years as a Presbyterian, I've served in the Synod Executive Committee in the English Presbytery Executive Committee. I've been the editor of the EP Express. I've been in charge of the training committee. And what I realized looking back is we never discussed the truth. We always try to create unity outside of the truth. We have games days. We have camps. We talk about common dress code. We talk about uh, common practices, common ways of doing things. But not the truth. And unfortunately, the Presbyterians today, which are believers in the charismatic theology, in the prosperity gospel theology, in the liberal theology, but we are still all united as Presbyterians, but, but we're not really united in a biblical way because we're not united in the truth. But that's not the way it's supposed to be because in God's eyes, as you can see right from the very beginning here, the elder loves the church in the truth. And the other churches which are in the truth love this church because they are also in the truth. Our unity comes from the common basis of being in the truth. Now, he goes on to say in the next part, verse 2, that the elder loves and the other churches love. Why? Because they are lovable? No. Because in verse 2, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. See, if you have the truth, if you're in the truth, if you're of the truth, if you know the truth, you must love. It is the motivation for love. It is the compulsion to love. In 1 John chapter 3, uh, next slide, same letter which was written by the same author, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and with truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth. Okay, same idea. How do we know we belong to the truth? And how we set our hearts at rest in His presence whenever our hearts condemn us. It is to love, isn't it? It is to love. So love doesn't come because we feel like loving our brothers and sisters, or because they are like us, or whether we can get something out of it, but rather we love because in the truth, it instructs us to love. It compels us to love. We have no choice but to love. And the reality is, if you are in the truth, that compulsion to love is actually even greater than any other force in this world. And I've seen in action. What is the strongest love uh, that you can sort of think of? Probably family love, isn't it? But truly, the love in the truth is even greater than family love. I remember when I went to theological college in Australia, when I first landed on, uh, in, in, in Sydney, I didn't have a place to live, and the whole idea was to live with my uh, relatives who had just built a brand new two-story building with many, many rooms, and we would stay there for a little while, hopefully for quite a while actually, before we found a place to stay. 
unfortunately, even though this relative had this brand new two-story huge building, we only lasted less than a week there. Because they, 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 it's not me lah. They, they, they blame my kids for being very messy with their crayons. Anyway, so, so, after a week we were asked to leave. And uh, this Christian woman, who had a two-bedroom, really small flat, actually put us up and let us stay there for a long, long time while we looked for a place to live. And to me that was really a lesson that people in the truth who obey the truth, who show love out of the truth, actually have more love and patience and care than even people in family. Well, it says here that the love that comes, comes because we are in the truth. But what else do we have in the truth? In verse 3 it says, Grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and in love. Now, this truth is the same as the truth early on. There's no difference in the word. It's exactly the same phrase. And what he's actually saying is, he's not wishing them grace, mercy and peace. You know, it's not like something like when you go to McDonald's and someone wishes you, have a nice day, right? I mean, it's kind of meaningless because will you really have a nice day? You don't know. But here in verse 3 is actually an, a, a positive affirmation of what you have if you are in the truth. If you are in the truth, and that means all people, the church, the elders, other Christians, if you're in the sphere of truth, then you will receive grace, mercy, and peace. And these are eternal blessings of God. Grace is the divine favor of God. That means it's the unconditional goodwill of God to you. Even though you don't deserve it, God is good to you. Mercy is is usually used in a legal sense, in a judgment sense, where you deserve punishment, but God gives you mercy instead. Peace is generally being reconciled with God in a relational way, but also the idea of being well in every level. And what it's saying here is that in the sphere of love, sorry, in the sphere of truth, if you're on this sphere of truth, if you're within the sphere of truth, you will receive grace, mercy, and peace. You see, we can only receive grace, mercy, and peace, all these positive things, if we are in the truth. A friend of mine once said to me, oh, you know, why do you worry about all these other churches which have different interpretations of how you read the Bible? So for him, it didn't matter whether you're Jehovah's Witness, whether you are a Mormon, whether you are a Catholic, whether you are charismatic, whether you go to Anglican church, whatever. As long as there is a word church in front of your building, you will be safe. How wrong he was, isn't it? Because in verse 3, you will only receive grace, mercy and peace, not because of the name of the church, but because you are in the truth. So the name of the church is irrelevant. It is whether you are in the truth that really matters before God. But if you read verse 3 carefully, it says that you will receive grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus if you are in the truth but also in love, isn't it? So those two things must come together. It's not just knowing the truth but having the love which flows out of that truth. So if you look up here on this slide, truth equals love, isn't it? You, you, you cannot have 
truth without love. And again, next slide. You need those two things, the love which flows out the truth as well as being the truth before you will receive grace, mercy and peace from God. See, there's no such thing as a loveless Christian. If you are in the truth, you will have love. I think part of the problem is there is a distinction, a false distinction that we make in terms of knowing the truth and walking the truth. See, look at what it says there in verse 4 to 6. There is a difference, you know, you can know the truth, but you do not walk the truth. In verse 4 it says, It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but the one we had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that you walk in obedience to His commands. As you have heard from the beginning, His command is that you walk in love. You see, knowing the truth is not the same as walking in the truth. Walking in the truth is shown by walking in love. You know, I know of uh, someone who has great theological knowledge. Um, This person was actually a theological lecturer in New Testament. Great knowledge, but no love. Knew the truth, but did not walk the truth. And I was thinking to myself, this person, can this person really be in the truth? If you know the truth, but you do not walk in the truth. See, walking in the truth means living out the implications of the truth in your life. If you know the truth, you know that Jesus died for you, if you know that God said you must love your neighbor as yourself, then how can you not love other people? Well, that's why it's so important, isn't it? To not just have the truth, but to love that comes out of the truth. So are you knowing the truth, or are you walking the truth? And if you are walking the truth, are you walking in love? Because that is the way that the truth must have its role and effect on you. In verse 7, we see now why this elder spends so much time talking about the truth. verse 7 it says, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be fully rewarded. I'm oh, sorry, rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them to your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Now, the NIV version here, our church version, is not kind of very helpful in a way because it's missing a word in the beginning of verse 7. Uh, for those of you who are using your ESV, you notice that the, the word that begins verse 7 is the word because or the word for. Okay, there's actually a connective word between verse 6 and verse 7, which is the word because or for. So the reason why the elder spends so much time talking about the truth, the truth, the truth, is not because he's got very limited vocabulary, but because 
he wants to emphasize that the truth is so important because they are in an environment where there are many people who are coming to deceive the church. Now these deceivers, uh, it says there, have gone out into the world. And uh, this word here, gone out into the world, actually has the idea of leaving the church and have gone out to deceive other people. Okay, they may be people within the church, or they may be wandering uh, preachers or missionaries who have been uh, deceived themselves and are preaching the wrong thing. But the reason why it is so important to hold on to the truth, to be in the truth, of the truth, walking in the truth, is because there are many people who are taking the truth and preaching untruth, turning the truth into lies. The specific deception here is found in verse 7. They do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. Now, it's not saying, as we might understand it, that Jesus did not come into the world at all. Okay, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that Jesus did not come in the flesh. So, in the ancient world, there was a very clear demarcation between the flesh, as in, you know, our flesh and bone, and spirit. And in ancient times, in Greek philosophy and everything, spirit was superior to flesh. Right? Flesh was weak, prone to sickness, decay, sin, all that stuff. But spirit was, was good. Spirit was what the gods had. Flesh is what we humans have. So what that false teaching is, most probably, was that they were saying that when Jesus came, he didn't come as a man. He came sort of as a man, he looked like a man, but actually he was a spirit in true essence and true nature. Now, we've just done the book of Hebrews. And what would happen if we said that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh? What would be the implications for our salvation? They would be terrible because Jesus didn't die on the cross for us. He didn't shed his blood for our sins. There would be no new covenant. He couldn't be our high priest who identifies with us because he took on our flesh. See, these, this, by this teaching, people were being deceived into false doctrine and lies, and as a result, they were losing their salvation, and that's why the elder uses such harsh words. He says, any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. He is like the personification of Satan working in this world. So when someone comes and teaches you a deception or a lie, you have to see that person for what they are. They are working for Satan. That's their employer. They are threatening to take away the grace, mercy and peace that you have in God. I think what the elder is really trying to say is the stakes are very, very high. What you believe really, really matters. If you lose the truth, you lose your salvation. There is no ifs and buts about it. That is what is at stake. And that's why it constantly amazes me why people are willing to put the truth that they have at risk. I've known Christians uh, in Australia and here who get into extended conversations and meetings with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses and over time lose the truth. I have met a friend of mine who was a tennis coach 
who goes to a, a mega church and I remember having a long lunch with him and I said, look, we've talked about this, you can see that what they're teaching is wrong and you yourself know it's wrong, why do you keep going? And the person said, well, I disagree with what the pastor says, but I like the music. But is music more important than the truth? In fact, one of the saddest cases I know of is my theological lecturer, my own theological lecturer when I was in theological college. Who I remember even when he was there, was, was really fascinated by this philosophical lecturer, uh, this writer, very famous writer, but famous to him, but to us, we won't, we won't hear of it. But this guy, I remember reading him, he didn't have the truth. He was a very interesting writer, very intellectual, very smart, very clever. But he had gone away from the truth and he was writing all sorts of weird things. And I remember, I felt really worried about my, about my lecturer doing his PhD and being so, so deeply interested in this person. And sure enough, today, my own theological lecturer does not have the truth. He questions very fundamental things in the Bible about the book of Genesis, whether God really did this, God really did that, whether the Bible actually can be taken literally. See, this is what happens, isn't it, when you play around with the truth. When you allow the deceivers to come in, when you welcome them, when you allow them to influence you, the, the problem is that you may lose the truth. Again, uh, I found another old book. Actually, there are lots of good books downstairs, I realise, but they just look so old that nobody borrows them. Okay, so there's another book by this guy called J.C. Ryle. And uh, he wrote this really good thing where he says that false doctrine does not meet men face to face and proclaim that it is false. It does not blow a trumpet before it and endeavour to openly turn us away from the truth as it is in Jesus. It does not come before men in broad day and summon them to surrender. It approaches us secretly, quietly, insidiously, plausibly, and in such a way as to disarm a man's suspicion and throw him off his guard. He says, uh, when, when a false teacher comes, he says, Believe me, he says, we do not want you to give up anything. We only want you to hold a few more clear views about the church and the sacraments, or a little more about this and that. And that's true, isn't it? If we understand the situation rightly, you can imagine the attraction in that world where a false teacher comes and says, oh, you know, this Jesus wasn't really man. He wasn't really flesh. He's the Spirit. It's not very different from what you may think you are believing. But actually, the implications are really big. In the same way, when someone comes to you today and says, oh, you know, I don't really want to, to change any way of what you're thinking, but let me just tell you a bit more about how, you know, God really wants to make you healthy. Or, or let me show you this way of praying or way of singing or way of worshipping that can make God more real in your life. All these things are dangerous, isn't it? Because it is where deception can come in and actually overturn the truth. Now in verse 10 to 11, he goes on to say, oh sorry, in verse 9 to 11, he expands a bit more about what is happening here. He says, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, then do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Now, what does it mean here? Obviously, the specific example was that Jesus did not come in the flesh, but he gives them a principle 
of how to identify lies and the deceiver. He says, anyone who runs ahead of the teaching of Christ. Now, what does it mean to run ahead? Okay, again, I've I got a picture for you. Okay, so imagine this is the body of truth that we have. It's a exclusive and limited information that is there from the Bible, passed down to us by Jesus and the apostles. To run ahead of it is to basically outdistance what the Bible can legitimately say. So I can say to you, you know, imagine, uh, this is uh, not me making it up, this is just real life. Okay, in Australia, there have been people approach me and say, you know, I'm really glad you believe all these things, but you know, were you baptized in a certain way? Because, you know, unless you're baptized in a certain way in my church, you are not saved. But that's running ahead of the, of the Bible, isn't it? Because the Bible never says that salvation comes because of the way you're baptized. Or I've, I've heard people say, oh, you know, you need to pray in a certain way. You need to exercise this spiritual discipline when you pray. Only then will your prayers be effective or God will listen to you. Again, is that running ahead of what the Bible is saying? Uh, in terms of how you pray and the, the promises that God gives of answering your prayers. So what are we to do then? Well, it says there that they were to have nothing to do with these people. Uh, in the ancient world, they didn't have uh, Hotel 81 or you know, other hotels where you could stay and just stay the night and then go and preach the next day and go home and do something else. People would stay and they would, as we see in the ancient world, they would stay in people's houses. And they would be welcomed and they would be fed by people who listen to them. And what it says here is that um, they were not to welcome them or welcome them into their house. That means that it wouldn't give them an opportunity to stay and to corrupt the local church. Now obviously for us today, we are not going to exercise that because I mean, people can stay wherever they want, they can preach. We have friends who are believing all sorts of things. But I think the principle is the same. The principle is, we must show intolerance to things which are not true. Isn't it? I mean, when people preach the wrong thing, when people are saying the untruths, we must be brave enough to say, look, that is not true. I should not listen to it. I should warn people about it. The problem is, in the world that we live in today, very, very few Christians are willing to have the attitude of saying, this person is preaching the wrong thing, they are deceiving people, they may even be the Antichrist, the way they're saying it, and I don't want to have anything to do with it. I was uh, reading, again, this uh, book by J.C. Rao, and he made a very good point. He says, I know well that the plain speaking about false doctrine is very unpopular and that the speaker must be content to find himself thought very uncharitable, very troublesome and very narrow-minded. Thousands of people can never distinguish the differences in doctrine. To the bulk of men, a clergyman is a clergyman, a sermon is a sermon and as to any difference between one minister another or one doctrine to another, they are utterly unable to understand it. I must make up my mind to meet up with their disapprobation. Okay, all right thing. I must bear it as best I can. I think that's the attitude of today. The attitude of today is we, we cannot judge other people. That's, that's the ultimate sin in this world, do you realize? 
So again, uh, Don Carson came a few months ago, and you know, I was reading this book of his called The Intolerance of Tolerance, and he says that now in the world we live in, what is the highest virtue that any man can have, any woman? Tolerance. Alright, tolerance is the number one virtue of this world, is the highest virtue of this world in which all the other virtues flow. I can commit adultery, and that's okay. I can sleep around, and the world says that's okay. I can drink and drive, and uh, if the police don't catch you, that's okay too. You can cheat and steal, to a certain degree, uh, be a big bang and cheat and steal other people, it doesn't matter. But to be intolerant is the unforgivable sin. But I think the fundamental that question that 2 John is really saying is, would you be tolerant or would you choose the truth? Right? There's a choice, tolerance or truth. Because what he's saying at the very end here is, you must be intolerant of the things which are not true. You must be willing to call it out and say, look, this is a lie. This is not part of the truth of the Bible. The whole world is saying, well, you know, that's just your reading of the Bible, my reading of the Bible. Everybody believes the different version of the Bible. But the stakes are so clear. If you are not in the truth as it has been given to us by God, passed down by Jesus, there is no grace and there is no mercy and there is no peace for you. So what will you choose? To be tolerant? Or will you choose the truth? Will you be willing to say, that is untrue, that will lead me into hell, that is the work of wickedness, and I want no part to play in it? Or will you be tolerant and accept all the teachings of this world, to be part of this world and to say everything is a relative truth? Well, that will be a big mistake. Because on the last day, when Jesus comes and He judges us, there will not be many versions of the truth. There will just be the truth that God has given to us. And if you, only if you are found in that truth, in the truth that God gives you, then you will be saved. So let's continue to hold on to the truth and to recognize untruth and lies for what they are and to be intolerant of them. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we may take your word seriously. We pray that we may take the truth seriously. That is more than just an interesting intellectual stimulation, but it is the way of salvation, the way of grace, the way of mercy and peace towards you. We pray that we will not succumb to the worldly secular pre- uh, pressure of being tolerant, and accepting all truths about you and all truths about the Bible and saying that we will all be alright. But help us to be sincere. Help us to not deal falsely with you and to only believe in your word as you have spoken to us. Help us to affirm only what you have said and not go beyond it and run beyond it. And dear Father, help us by the Holy Spirit in our hearts, to walk in that truth and to love greatly. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.